your Bibles, if you would, to John chapter 3. Working our way through the Gospel of John. Uh, John 3, found on page 888, if you're using one of the blue chair Bibles. In his book, The Vanishing American Adult, on how to better help children and teenagers transition into adults, Senator Ben Sass of Nebraska highlights one culprit of perpetual adolescence as out-of-control consumerism. He writes, America is, for better or for worse, a consumer's paradise. Almost all of us live within walking or short driving distance of a supermarket with two dozen brands of bread, 26 kinds of ham, 31 types of mustard, more than 40 varieties of mayonnaise, and lettuce from multiple continents. It's a complicated sandwich. He continues on that one of the problems that abundance creates is easy to see why some of us might have begun to confuse wants with needs and to mistake convenience and necessity. This generation of emerging adults might not merely be neglecting the distinction between need and want. They might, more tragically, have never learned this critical difference in the first place. So he goes on to write about the consequences of confusing a want and a need. If you've ever been around children or had children, you will have seen this firsthand. I need that. No, you want that. But while this is a great problem, I think there can be an even greater but opposite problem. And that problem is when we confuse a want with a need. To look at something as merely an option or an opinion when in fact it is a need and a necessity. I think this happens when we look at our faith and we see it as an opinion or treat it as an opinion rather than as necessity. In the beginning of John chapter 3, we saw Jesus say to Nicodemus, you must be born again. He didn't say, hey, if you want to try it out, maybe that'd be cool. He said, you must be born again. We've turned what is a necessity into a possibility. We've turned the need for new life in Christ into merely a want. So today as we look through some very, very familiar verses in the middle of John chapter 3, I want us to see the need of the gospel, the need of new life in Christ. Because when we treat it as the need that it is, it will transform how we live. So our big idea, if you're following along, is this. We need to place our trust in Jesus Christ to be saved from judgment and to eternal life. So let's first look at John chapter 3, verses 16 
and 17. You can follow along in your Bible or follow along in your heart, uh, whichever (laughs) version you memorized these verses. Follow along as I read. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. As we begin looking at this familiar text, I want to bring up a quick note about the nature of this text. There's some debate about this, but uh, if you have a Bible that has red letters in it, I'm going to have a little disagreement with it for a second. I think it's best to understand John 3, 16 to 21, not as the words of Jesus, and therefore to be in red, but to be the words of the author John, explaining what Jesus has just said in John 3, verses 1 to 15. There's some debate on this. It doesn't change anything in a full way, but I think it affects how we read it. That John is explaining, and one of the reasons I bring this up is because of restraints of time, because of our ability to take in data, sometimes we chop up God's word in a way that isn't always helpful. And so if I was a real preacher, I would have done John 3, 1 to 21 in one sermon, and it would have been amazing. But because of restraints of talent and time, you get two sermons. But we don't want to disconnect what God's word says from the other parts of God's word and become Christians who rely more on sound bites than their Bible. And so again, we need to keep this connected to what Jesus said of you must be born again. You must have a completely new life, not just a better life. And it's not just an option, it's not just a possibility, it is a necessity. We don't need you version 2.0. We need an entirely new you. I need an entirely new me. And so how did God do that? How did God bring about the new life through Christ? Enter John 3.16. God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Now I think because of the familiarity of this verse, we are tempted to breeze very quickly through it. And one of the important things about understanding this verse is understanding what Jesus means, what John means when he says God loved the world. What is he talking about? We need to think of how to define world. First thing we understand, and this gets to the center of of who we are and our identity, the first thing is that we are created by God. Human beings are created in his image, and God loves us because he created us. But secondly, the other truth that we know about ourselves and our identity is that we are fallen. We are in rebellion against the God who created us. So when we read God loved the world, 
We need to understand fully what that means, that God loved sinful, rebellious humanity that he created. Do you see the depth of love there? It's not just he loved the lovable, he loved the rebellious, you and I. We are the rebellious people whom God loved Romans chapter 5 talks about, but God demonstrated his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. See, we need to slow down and see the greatness of God's love for rebellious people separated from him by their evil and their wickedness. That is who we are. That is the love that God has. And what did he do? He sent his son, Jesus. He sent him to earth to live among us, to die and rise for us, And the response of that, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Belief is the entrance, not ethnicity, not social standing, not anything about your identity, but belief. It's the the common denominator of entrance into the kingdom. And so all who believe are saved from perishing. They're saved from the punishment their rebellion deserves. Jesus did not come into a morally neutral world. (laughs) When Jesus came, we were not neutral towards him, but we were against him because of our sin. And so those who believe in Jesus are saved from the judgment they deserve and receive eternal life. See, we need to slow down to see that again. That God demonstrated his love to me, he demonstrated his love to you in not leaving us how we are, not leaving us in our sin that deserved punishment, but by sending his son to save us from that punishment, to take on the punishment we deserved and to save us from it and to give us as a gift eternal life with him. John goes on in verse 17. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. purpose of Jesus coming was to save those who apart from Christ would condemn themselves. Jesus didn't need to condemn us. We were already condemned. And so the miracle is that God saved some. God saved those through Christ. He saved some of this world these rebellious people, you and me. One author writes about this love. God's love is to be admired not because the world is so big and includes so many people, but because the world is so bad. God loves the world with selfless, costly love of redemption. 
Before Christ, we were enemies of God. And to save his enemies, God sent his son that whoever believes, whoever believes, will no longer be an enemy, but will be saved to eternal life. But we see in John 18 and 19, it answers the question, what about those who do not believe? You don't have to spend much time in the world to see that there are some who believe in Jesus and there's some who don't. If Jesus saves whoever believes, but you have to believe, then what about those who do not believe? Let's look at verses 18 and 19. Here's that whoever again. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. John begins verse 18 by repeating what was said in verses 16 and 17 that whoever believes is no longer condemned. Your sins are no longer held against you because you've believed in Jesus. But then he turns to the truth that there are those who have rejected Jesus. And John is very clear when he says, but whoever does not believe, whoever rejects, is condemned already. Why? Because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. What we need to see in these verses, again, these familiar verses about the love of God, is the truth and the reality of there being two options. There's belief in Jesus, and there is not belief in Jesus. Notice there is no room for any other option. It's not whoever believes is not condemned, but whoever gets close enough. There's no third option here. It's who has believed and who has not. This is where I think we get into confusing want and need. The Bible is very clear. There is a need to place your personal trust in Jesus Christ. There's no other way. The Bible does not give us another option. Again, listen to 18. Whoever does not believe, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. The reason someone is condemned is they have not believed that Jesus is who he says he was. I repeat this because the simplicity that we tend to cloud, oftentimes even for good intentions, but the Bible is quite clear. So what I want you to see here is that the gospel is a necessity. 
It's not just a want or an opinion. Because there's two choices. There's faith, which leads to eternal life, and there's rejection, which leads to condemnation. There's only two paths. And we can't complexify what is simple. We can't muddy the waters because muddying the waters leads to condemnation. We never want to lead people away from Jesus because there's no other way. In verse 19, John gets into some of the reasons why people reject Jesus. If Jesus is the Savior, and if he is an expression of the love of God, why don't people believe in him? Look at 19, and this is the judgment. The light has come into the world. That's Jesus. Jesus is referred to as the light at the beginning of John. He's referred to it in John 8, and God is called light in 1 John chapter 1. It's a common way to talk about his holiness, his goodness, his godness. So the light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light. They wanted to stay in rebellion. They wanted to stay separated from God. Why? Because their works were evil. They did not want to change. They did not want to place their trust in Jesus Christ because they were happy in the dark. So they respond to the love towards them from God with love for the darkness in which they live. And again, the, the binary nature of these categories. It's either light or dark. You're either living in the light of Christ or you're in the darkness. There's no third option presented here. They would rather keep living their life their way by their rules than to find new and eternal life in Christ. John turns in verses 20 and 21. So we had whoever believes to be saved, whoever rejects will be condemned. And in the third part of this passage, we see that everyone will be shown for who they are. Let's look at verses 20 and 21. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Again, in 21, we see that whoever that was repeated in verses 18 and 16. 
This happens to whoever does this. The metaphor that John uses here reminds me of an old, not a specific movie, but that old type of movie where someone's trying to break out of prison. The old prison escape genre of movies, and they get out of their cell, they get into the courtyard, and what do they have to do? They have to avoid the spotlight of the guards. And they run and they try to hide in the courtyard, but why? They don't want to be seen. You know, if the spotlight, and there's always that scene where they just miss the spotlight or they get caught in it and then something happens for them to get away. But it's this picture of running around in the light because you don't want to get seen, you don't want to get caught. In the same way, John says, for everyone who does wicked things hates the light. Hates the goodness and holiness of Jesus. And they don't come into the light. Why? Because when they come into the light, they're exposed for who they are. The holy light of Jesus shows who you are. There's no fooling Jesus. You can fool me. You can fool your friends. You can fool your neighbors. But you can't fool Jesus. And in the light of Christ, you're seen for who you are. And so those who have rejected Christ stay away from the light of Christ because they don't want to be exposed for who they are. But when someone who, who is in relationship with Jesus, someone who has placed their faith in Jesus, when they come into the light, what do we see? We see God's working in their life. Do you see the difference there? For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works shall be exposed. His sinful action, his sinful attitude. But whoever does what is true, whoever does what is good and right, when he comes into the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. That phrase there, been carried out in God, is a way to talk about when someone comes into the light, we see that God is the one who made them. That God is the one working in them. That God brought them to salvation and forgave them and gave them new life. And now everything they do in obedience to Christ is actually God working in them. So when someone who places their faith in Christ comes into the light, we see more of God in them. Because we see the forgiveness of God. And we see the empowerment by the Holy Spirit to live lives of obedience and holiness. When someone who rejects Christ comes into the light, we see their sin. When someone who's been forgiven comes into the light, we see more of Jesus. Jesus is on display because it is Jesus working in us to save us and to make us more like him. So when God looks on one who is rejected, the sin is seen. But when God looks on the one who has believed, Jesus is seen.
as with this whole passage, we need to see the simplicity of categories. There's two choices. There's the light and the darkness. The believing in Jesus and the rejecting of Jesus. There's no third option. There's no additional option of any kind. It's one or the other. This is what I mean when I talk about the necessity of the gospel. People need to believe in Jesus. It's not just, a, man, it'd be great if they did. <laughs> because apart from Jesus, they face the condemnation that their sins deserve. But with Jesus, they are forgiven and given eternal life. See, there's a tension here in that there are only two choices. And in one sense, Christianity is very exclusive. That we believe there is one way. But don't forget verse 16. That anyone, regardless of who they are or what they've done, can repent of their sins and place their faith in Christ and become one of Jesus' people. So in one sense, again, when, there's, when we speak of two paths, one leading towards Jesus, one leading away from Jesus, it is very exclusive. But at the same time, Christianity is incredibly inclusive in that the only way in is open to all who would believe. Doesn't matter what country you're from, doesn't matter what you look like or how much you make or anything about you. What matters is, do you believe in Jesus? And the exclusivity of Christ shows us that it is necessary for you to believe in Jesus. Again, the problem comes when we take the need out of the gospel. John 3.16 will not change your life if you don't see it as a need. If you confuse it for a want or a possibility. But what I want you to see this morning is that John 3.16 and these other verses are what we need. You, me, I need this. And the community and the people around us need this message. And where I think we go wrong and where I think we worry about things less important is when we turn the gospel into a possibility instead of a necessity. That's when we get off into the weeds. That's when we focus on the wrong things. That's when we get caught up in the wrong things. Or even good things, but less important things. Is we don't remember the necessity of the gospel. We don't remember the necessity to us that apart from faith in Christ, we would stand in condemnation. I don't care how good you are 
or how religious your parents were or whatever you've done, without faith in Christ, you stand under condemnation. And if it's true of us, it's true of our world. Without Christ, the people we know and love stand under condemnation. And even the people we know and don't love stand under condemnation. And so all of us, we here, the people out there, need the message of John 3.16. So let me apply this simply and quickly. And you can probably already guess what I'm going to say. <laughs> Number one, you need to place your trust in Jesus Christ. And when you do, and it's the only way, it's the only way to be forgiven of your sins. It's the only way for you to be saved from the judgment that your sin deserves. And it is the only way to eternal life with God the God who created and loved you forever. This is not a want, it's a need. And then secondly, you need to tell others about Jesus. And I think this is where most of us confuse the want and the need. We know in our heads that people need the gospel. But do we actually live it out in our lives that they need it? Because if we recognized it as the need, I think our priorities would be different. When we understand that people need the gospel, we prioritize sharing the gospel in the various ways that we do that. And when we prioritize differently, we live differently. Sometimes I think we can look at our lives and how they are not different from those around us. And it's an, an indictment on us that we've not faithfully prioritized the need of the gospel for others. Because it changes how you relate to your neighbors. It changes how you relate to your family. It changes how you spend your time, how you spend your money, how you parent your kids. It changes everything. But it won't change it. The status quo will remain if it's just a want and not a need. And that's when we start to look like everybody else around us. And God has called us to better God has called us to more. God has called us to be his missionaries to our families, to our friends, to our neighbors, to our workplaces, to our community. And we're only going to be missionaries, we're only going to be his messengers if we actually believe this is a necessity. If we actually believe that God sent his son into the world to save it. And that apart from Christ, those people who reject Jesus are under condemnation.
Let's remember the need of the gospel, both for ourselves, how the Holy Spirit to change how we live and to reorient our lives around the gospel. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word that we would every day remember that your, your son, that you loved us, that you sent your son to die for us so that we would not have to face the condemnation that our sin deserved and that whoever believes receives forgiveness and eternal life. God, that we would, by the power of your spirit, prioritize the gospel in our lives, that we would allow it to change how we live and how we interact with others, and that we would not be content with the status quo, that we would not be content to just look like everybody else, but that we would be your people, your messengers, your missionaries to a world that is in rebellion against you. And that we would be bold and compassionate and share the need of the gospel of those who are perishing. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to invite those who are helping with communion to come forward at this time. Communion is a gift to us, God's people, as a regular reminder of the gospel that we just talked about. It is a reminder with things that we can feel and touch and taste and smell. It's a reminder that God sent his son to take our place and that his blood was shed for the forgiveness of our sins so that we could be reconciled to God and have the hope of eternal life. That's the picture. That's what we're acting out here this morning. So because of that, if you are a believer in Jesus, we welcome you to take communion with us. You don't have to be a member at this church. We just ask that you're a believer. If you're not a believer in Jesus, we just ask that you allow the elements to pass. And then I'd love to talk to you about what it means to place your trust in Jesus Christ. For those who are taking communion, because we are celebrating something that pictures the sacrifice of Jesus, we need to take it seriously. And so as we pass out the elements that you would take time to reflect in your heart, that you would confess what you need to confess and examine your heart before God as you prepare to take these elements. As is our custom, we'll pass out both the bread and the juice together, hold on to them and we'll take them together to celebrate the fellowship we have with God and the fellowship we have with one another.